This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Bob Piano. It was recorded at Gallows Hill Spirits in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Gallows Hill Spirits and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. We're here at Gallows Hill Spirits. I'm joined by Bob Piano. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, coming in. You're very welcome. So how did all this get started? Talk about Gallows Hill Spirits and how did what was the inception of the distillery? The distillery itself is, there's, I'd always wanted to do something for, um, in the manufacturing realm. I wanted to provide a product and fulfill that product to, to people. That's always been a, a goal of mine, doing something for myself. Um, as far as the distillery goes, I'd started home brewing beer in 94. And rather than open up a brewery, which is certainly in the realm of possibility, looking at the current marketplace, there's almost 30 breweries in the valley right now. And I didn't want to be another one of those. So I looked at craft spirits. And at the time, I started all this business plan, which was in 2013. Uh, the market was certainly different. Um, there were only three uh, distilleries registered at that point in time in the Lehigh Valley. So the market share was much bigger for me to jump in. There was more time, more space for me to open up something like this. So I started looking at spirits because if you can make good beer, you can turn that into good spirits. And we've talked about your beer making history, your love and passion for beer. How did all that find its way to you? How did you get into the the beer side of things? The beer side started long ago. I was on a business trip to Denver and one of my employees picked me up at the airport and he said, do you mind if we stop at the house? I just want to check on my girls before I drop you off at the hotel said, going to a hotel doesn't much matter to me. So we stopped at his house. He checked on his kids. Kids were doing fine. While we're there, he said, do you want a beer? Well, I was used to beer being yellow fizzy crap, and that wasn't what I wanted. So I said, no. That that should be the new slogan for a lot of beer manufacturers, (laughs) shouldn't it? Hey, yellow fizzy crap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So not my style. Basically, and but that's all all I had known up to this point. He said, well, I made it myself. And that's what kind of got me. I'm like, wait a minute. You made this beer? Yeah. So this was your first introduction to, to, craft, to, to homey, homebrew, homebrew yep. craft beer. Yep. I tasted it, and it was some of the best beer I had tasted. Uh, again, I was used to mass-produced, yellow, fizzy stuff. Um, this was not that at all. It had flavor. It had depth. It had body. It had character. It was really interesting. And I, I was completely taken back by this. I said, wait a minute. You made this. He said, Yeah. So he gave me a book. Still not convinced you made it. He wanted to find out where all of his equipment was, <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. So where's this brewery? <laughs> right. And I come to find out what a home brewery is, and it's you know fits in a closet for most people. While I was there, he gave me the complete joy of home brewing. 
uh, from Charlie Papazian. I read the book on the flight home. When you the, were you were really hooked, right? I mean, this I really this really hit you for someone who goes from not really drinking beer because it was not that interesting to me to someone that was like, "Wait a minute, this is incredible! I just want to find out everything about it." So by the time what I what a life changing experience, kinda. So when I got back, I found my local homebrew shop. I stopped in, introduced myself, and started talking to those guys about beer. The one thing I have found about the beer world: everyone's open, friendly, and welcoming. Trying to find those idiots in the crowd. They're few and far between among homebrewers. rest of the world, yeah, you can certainly pick them out and find them easily. But in the homebrewing crowd or beer crowd in general, um, they're really hard to come by. I think because people are very interested to hear what you're doing. They want to learn from you. And they're excited to teach and share what they're doing, too. It's, you know, as you pointed out, and, and I talk to a lot of homebrewers as well, it's a very welcoming community. Yep. And I think from a standpoint, when you started in the homebrew to where it is today, given as you said, all of the, you know, even even the, the business breweries that are open in the area, it could become very intimidating for somebody to say, I want to start brewing my own beer because of what has already come before. And then they come to find there's a lot of welcoming, you know, you know the people they're going to find are very welcoming to the, to, to the brew, the craft brew spirits, the, yes. the homebrew spirits industry. Yeah, um, I was the president of Lehigh Valley Homebrewers uh, back in 2009, 2010. And one of my goals at that point in time was the meetings can get kind of clickish. Um, so I grabbed my officer team and I said, okay, your job during the meetings is to find somebody who it's their first time out, find them, grab them, and take them around and introduce them to everyone. You know, let them share these people's beers. Because what I was seeing was there'd be a bunch of new people standing in the corner standing back going well i don't know any of these people and you got a bunch of people that know each other pretty well and they're traveling around either clustered together in a single group or they're wandering the floor trying different beers like grab the new guys let's get them initiated and bring them around to help them out i think that's very insightful and i think that's as is as, as an example of what you're doing here with gallows hill spirits you're building community and you're bringing people into something they may not have had. And that's your, your welcoming, your hospitality side of things. When you were doing the homebrew uh, side of things and, and working with the, the Lehigh Valley Homebrewing Club, were there, you know, for you, Bob, were there, were there beers that you preferred to make or the beers that you prefer to enjoy? Uh, when I started brewing, I'd say the first 10 to 12 years of my brewing was I was a cowboy. Didn't care. Never heard of it. Want to try it? Screw it. I'm going for it. Okay. As a homebrewer, it's fine. It's easy. Why? Because at worst, my most expensive batch of beer was $105. Okay, yeah, that's very expensive for a batch of homebrew. But I tried something very unique. I entered it into competition, and the word back from the judges was, this is an assault to the palate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was an ex- extreme breakfast stout. Okay. So it was an imperialized breakfast stout. It had everything in there. I had two pounds of Kona coffee in there, uh, cold brewed, of course, so I don't get any tannin extracts. Um, we had two pounds of rolled oats in there to smooth out the flavor, to kind of extend some of the, the uh, mouthfeel to it. Uh, it was a very expensive batch of beer. Well, when I entered it into competition, it was certainly a punch in the mouth. But I let that stuff age for about three more years. And then tried it. And okay. Everyone, I mean, basically, I went from nobody really wants any. I might have gone through a six-pack to the rest of the, the entire batch being gone within the period of about four months. So learning something about homebrewing or learning something about beer, what was it that 
that three-year period did to the beer where it made it more palatable? palatable? Uh, basically, um, some of the bittering components, some of the hops, etc., are diminishing over that course of time. You've got some oxidation going on, so that kind of, in some styles of beer, can add to, um, to can actually benefit the beer. Like barley wines, Russian Imperial Stouts, those kind of things. They're actually going to benefit the longer age you get than just a little bit of oxidation. You never want it to get to sherry or cardboard or anything like that. But some age will help uh, mellow some other, other items out. Also, if you've got fusel alcohols, uh, fermentation goes a little wrong, you wind up with some fusels in there. Fusels are really hot alcohols that burn your throat. Over a year's time or so, they'll start to mellow out as well. Okay, I'm listening to all that you're saying about homebrewing beer, and I'm all, all of a sudden thinking, we should just do a segment of <laughs> homebrewing beer with Bob, and that'll be the next podcast we do. Uh, but look, one of the things I sense from you is your overall passion, your desire, your curiosity, and... How does all that transfer into making spirits, though? Other than the fact that this area in the Lehigh Valley is saturated with, with breweries, where does the full transition come from for, for opening up a distillery? Uh, well, to start it off, um, I had always been interested in this. I built my first still when I was 14 years old. Uh, I had gone rummaging through a friend's grandmother's... Uh, you built your first still at 14? Correct. Okay. That is cool. Uh, for me, it was a thought experiment. Gotcha. I this was see... a science project. I was curious. Exactly. Right. I wanted to understand how it worked and can I make this work. So we found an old pressure cooker in my friend's grandmother's dilapidated barn. It was full of junk. So found it, went, do you think she'd miss it? He said, <laughs> now she won't even know that it's here. So we took that, uh, modified it. So we took the pressure uh, retaining cap off, soldered on a copper elbow, Ran from that, took half-inch copper elbow across the kitchen to the sink where I put a copper coil in the sink. All right, so kids your age are out there. They're maybe playing sports. <laughs> um, they're, they're, you're, they're just getting into trouble or, or, or studying or whatever. You're building a still. Correct. And, and not only that, you're soldering and, and yes. doing things that most <laughs> things that people wouldn't think of doing. That's so fascinating. Um, <laughs> it's just, if I thought it... I was like, okay, let's figure out how to do this. Gotcha. And that's what it came down so to. So did you follow a manual? Were you follow, I mean, Google didn't, wasn't around no, then. No, there was no Google. There was nothing like that. How did so you know what to do? books from the library I was able to get a hold of to understand the process. The problem was I didn't understand enough of the process. I understood the mechanical side of things, but the chemistry was completely beyond me. So I built this still. I stole a six-pack of Budweiser from my stepdad. Uh, I threw that, opened the cans, threw it into the pot, set the pot on the stove, and fired it up. All I knew was is that I couldn't fire it all the way up because the hotter you go, you're going to get everything mishmashed together. And I was trying to keep the water out of it. So I all said, you want is the vapor. All you want is the steam. The alcohol, out. which yep. boils at 173, right. versus water at 212. So I'm trying to keep it between those two points to get as much alcohol as possible. I don't have any temp temperature instruments, so I'm guessing at all of this stuff. But I was able to distill that six-pack of beer into about half a cup of some liquid. Now, I say some liquid because, as I said, I didn't quite understand all yeah, of the Yeah, you've got hearts and tails. And, exactly. Right? you got everything going on there. So I've got acetone in there. I've got um, methanol in there. I've got ethanol, which is what I was really looking for but didn't understand how to separate that out. Right. I get all, all of that stuff in there. So the taste, absolutely nasty. I could tell it was alcohol. But it was not something that I was going to go, yeah, look at this. I did this. But that was never the goal either. It was never to, to make alcohol to get drunk. 
I could have had the six pack and got drunk. Of course. Um, it was about trying to understand the process. And so I'd gotten to a point where I built this still and it worked. I didn't understand enough of the process to make good spirit, but I made the thing work that I thought I would give it a shot. So we put that aside, trashed it essentially. And um, I just put it all away because I understood how to take beer and turn it into alcohol. How the hell do you make beer? How does the alcohol get into the beer? And that's something that I really didn't. So that's where you started learning about fermentation, fermentation and, and all that, and, and the brewing process. after um, having that experience out in Colorado. Wow! So I'm, I'm suddenly thinking as you're talking about this, this should really be something offered in a science class. And, and I've talked to other, you know, other people about their interest and how, some point of an age, they got interested in either brewing or distilling or fermentation. And it always seems like if if this was something we focused on in in high school science class, not for the purpose again of producing alcohol, but the purpose of understanding the science of what that does. Right. I think there'd be a strong interest in that. Sure. And and I think there'd be a, a great learning opportunity. So. Through what's going on today, just start a YouTube channel and teach home classes for all the kids and stuff that they're not able to go to school so you can teach home distilling. <laughs> home distilling with Bob. Yeah, I don't think that would make me very popular no. with the government. but <laughs> Perhaps not right now, no. What I, I, I'm curious about, so you've got this understanding at 14 of, of distillation and, and, and what you're doing. This building we're in now. Yep. How did this get started, and, and why did you chose, choose to go down this path? In 2013, again, I had made the decision that, okay, the brewery market was on its way. It was almost at an eclipse, in my opinion. Now, still shows. There are breweries that are opening up today that are very successful. So it's not that the market is overly saturated. We just were nearing that point. And rather than be part of that crew, I wanted to find something different. So I started looking at craft spirits. I started playing with some distillation type stuff and found that I wasn't having the same issues I had with that very first batch at 14 years old. The stuff I was making, I understood the process a little bit better. I had done more research into things. And all Did you have anybody help you? I mean, was there anybody that you went to as a research? You, you like figuring this out on your own. You like yes. to tinker and you really like to enjoy the process of discovering this sure. as, as just finding knowledge. And anytime I met somebody who could mentor me, you can bet your ass I was sitting there and firing questions off to try and not only get their opinion on some pieces of the process, but they're to add to my general understanding of the entire process. Were there people that, you know, you, you were mentored by early on or people that you spoke to? Um, it was more online. Okay. Uh, a couple people online were, were able to help me out. The homedistiller.org is where I spent hours just studying. Okay, this recipe seems to work. It seems to work for a lot of people. Oh, this is what it's made from. Okay, I see how they're doing the fermentation. I'm wondering about different components of it. Is this really the right way to go about things? So I'm tra- taking my brewing background in fermentation sciences and applying it to home distillers and seeing what they're doing and going, okay, I think I can make this a little better by if we do this or we don't have to worry about that. I mean, lots of home distillers out there are using stuff stuff called turbo yeast or distiller's yeast, which is great. Gets you a lot of alcohol, but also gets you a lot of byproducts. It's my opinion is it's better to make a cleaner product so you don't have to deal with all of those byproducts. The impurities are the byproducts, right. Right. That fusel alcohol that I talked about. Well, that's one of the downsides of champagne yeast, turbo yeast, distiller's yeast. All of those things come with higher efficiencies, uh, but they also bring forth a whole lot of other pieces and parts that then you have to deal with once you distill that product. 
Yeah, we, we've had a number of conversations. and In fact, we just met with Chris, Chris Flowers at the Reading Distilling Guild, and we had a long conversation about yeast and, and how we went through a process of, of choosing yeast. So what was your final way of determining what yeast was good for you? For me, I'm a baseline kind of guy. I use one yeast here. As a brewer, I've used 30 different yeast strains. Right. But as a distiller, I only use one. Um, it's common over the product. It's, well, before the quarantine it was available everywhere uh, right now i am having some issues getting uh, materials in to, to distill but again looking for baseline so i don't care that it goes to 10 or 12 or 15 percent not interested in that because again those higher percentages of alcohols you also get a bunch of byproduct in there that you don't want so i kept it around eight percent and that's kind of where i've capped off yes that makes the process a lot less efficient so i'm going through a whole lot more beer um, to make the alcohol than I would if I had used, brought those beers up, made them bigger. But again, I don't have to worry about that other side of things, the byproducts. Um, so I chose a baseline, very clean yeast. In the brewer's world, it would be something akin to a US05, uh, which is the American strain. It's just a nice, clean, well-performing yeast. Doesn't leave much in the way of byproduct of if you ferment it on the lower side of things, which means 65 to 68, again, you're limiting those byproducts. Now, you're also limiting some flavor components, but... Which I think is unique, and what people realize about yeast is the flavor component that you get imparted into the distilled spirit as well. Yes, absolutely. That's the one thing that when I first started with this, all of my friends were giving me all of their bad beers. Oh, this sucked. Here, take this. <laughs> Okay, first off, you gave me four you're, gallons you're like, of beer. You're like the goodwill of bad beer. <laughs> yes. It's like, here's four gallons of bad beer. And I'm thinking, okay, if I turn that into alcohol, you're going to get about a pint. <laughs> okay. Is this really worth the time and trouble? And it's going to carry some of those very same flaws through to the final product. So in homebrewers, there are a lot of big flaws that can be made. Now, that's not to say that homebrewers are bad, because there are plenty of homebrewers out there that are really accomplished experts in their fields. But some of the stuff I was getting was like, okay, wait, this is this is just such a terrible... There's no way I'm going to distill that flavor out of it. Yeah, it's it's, it's not worth your product. time. I mean, it could be, uh, again, a learning experience for you, but I think you've learned enough along the way to figure out it's not going to be a value in your time. Right. Now, this space here... Yep. Gallows Hill Spirits. Yep. It's a unique tasting room. You've got the distiller. You've, you, you know, you've experimented. You've got a sense of what you want to distill. Mm -hmm. Talk about the history of, of the distillery itself and, and the theme going on here. The distillery, like I said, came about in 2013 is when I started putting the business plan together. I started looking at spaces, um, understanding that's an important part of what goes on here. This is the eighth property I actually fully vetted. In order to get a distillery open, you need to have approval from the city. You need to have approval from the state. You need to have the federal approval. All of they have, they all have to line up and agree on one piece of property. That's a lot of work. So it took three years to finally get to a point where I could sign the lease here. Now, the nice thing about this space is that it was a completely blank canvas. There were no walls. There was nothing here at all. No heat, no hot water, no electric. Um, so, so you really get to outfit the space absolutely. as to your needs, not to fit your needs into a space that's already configured. Correct. So that was the big benefit. Now, this is one of the more expensive pieces of property that I looked at. So I knew I was going to have to pay for that. I should have been a little more capital forward when I did made that decision. But 
We're still alive, yep, so we're, we're good. still here. <laughs> still open for business. Seven years later, you're still here to talk about it. Yeah, it's only two, so. I rented this space in 2016. It gotcha. took us over a year to build it out. So we finally opened the doors in 2018. Um, the unique thing about the tasting room here is the story. The story is not about distilling. The story is about my family history. Now, the last person executed during the Salem witch trials was my eight times great-grandfather. So, if you look around the walls here, you're going to be able to find a bit of history about the Salem Witch Trials. And that's part of what we impart. So, when people come in for a tour on the weekends, we're going to talk about the Salem Witch Trials for a good 40 minutes. Um, then we're going to go in the back and talk about spirits and how they're made. It's pretty mixed. We get lots of questions out here about what went on with the, the Witch Trials. And then we'll step into the back and talk about the science and whatnot goes on back there. And you get just as many questions back there as, okay, well, how does it, what color does it come off the still as, you know, there's a bunch of things that people don't understand. So not only do people not understand stuff about the Witch Trials, they don't understand necessarily about the distillery side of things. So I kind of put those two together. And that took me a long time. I discovered this family history of mine. It's not something I grew up with. I discovered it in 2007. How so, did that come about? How did you discover that? Mom had done some ancestry work, ancestry work, so she gave me a family tree that went back about four or five generations. I took that and I plugged it in ancestry.com and I started working on that. I worked on it for about a year and I right now I'm back to before the time of Christ. It's not easy to do and there is some guesswork in it, but it happens to be that my family is uh, well researched. So not only are we involved in the Salem Witch Trials, if we go back to my 23rd, 23 times great-grandfather, he was uh, king of England. Oh, okay. This is we're amongst royalty. Yeah, well, uh, not, not really I, because it I, gets watered down each uh, time. I, I, I guess I shouldn't bow the next nah, time nah, I see it. There's absolutely no need here. <laughs> I am absolutely no. I am not worthy of that. Okay. Um, well, from the spirits you produce, you might be. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> So King Edward I, Edward Longshanks, is uh, my 23 times great-grandfather. Um, and that's what made it easy, because it tied into a royal bloodline. And as soon as you tie into a royal bloodline, they have to carry their pedigree with them. So you can prove that you're part of the royal family. So instantly, somebody just handed me 600 years of my family history. That's kind of where it gets easier to go, go back that far. Um, there are other lines in my family history, like the Italian side, my father's family. I can go back to Italy and I can tell you what towns in Italy, but that's as far as I go. Okay. If I didn't meet the person, I really don't have them in the family tree. You have to go back to the church to get the real records, and I have not been to Italy, so. Bob, let me ask you. So understanding the history and the lineage of your family, how did you apply it to the theme or the namesake of the distillery? Um, place where the Salem witches were executed was uh, Gallows Hill. Uh, I went up and took a tour of uh, Salem with my family uh, to learn more about the family history once we discovered this. Um, so basically I was going through and I did the research and I found, okay, the, what I was looking for was there was a story that mom had heard about um, the family history saying that we had two relatives come over on the Mayflower. So mom wanted to know whether she was part of the Mayflower family. I went back and I found the, did the research and I found those two relatives. So I was able to confirm that they are indeed family members and were aboard the Mayflower. The problem is, in order to be part of the Mayflower family, you have to be descended from a passenger on the Mayflower. And we're not. Okay. They were both uncles. So two separate lines, both uncles on the, on, uh, the Mayflower. So that was a bit disappointing. But at the same time, I look back and I now have this lineage, this history, and I said, well, 
It goes right through the Salem and Andover area. Let's take a look at the witch trial victims. So I did my research and found online something akin to the wall that we're sitting in front of, which is our memorial wall, and it lists all 25 people that lost their lives during the Salem witch trials. Well, as I'm going through there, I find Samuel Wardwell, and I'm thinking, okay, Wardwell is my mother's maiden name. So I start taking a look into that, and I was able to prove that, yes, Samuel is my eight times great-grandfather. I was able to get through all of that stuff. So when I told the family that, you know, okay, yes, we're, we had relatives on the Mayflower, but we're not part of the Mayflower family. My mother, of course, was disappointed. And then I told her this story, and she was beyond uh, thrilled. That's when we took the trip up to Salem to learn more about the family. I'm curious about your eight times great-grandfather mm -hmm. and what was his connection to witchcraft or is it witchcraft or witchery or what would you say it is? <laughs> witchcraft, I, I would I would say is the is the uh, for for the the technical jargon. It's witchcraft. It was actually consorting with the devil. That Consor was the crime. So that was what his crime was. Consorting with the devil. There's um, up on the opposite side of the wall here. There is a copy of the warrant uh, for his arrest. Um, and that lists his crime, which is consorting with the devil, uh, maliciously and feloniously consorting with the devil. <laughs> now, and, and what I would say, from my understanding of the Salem Witch Trial, it seems to be more female-centered as far as executions than male-centered as well. You're hitting on some of the myths about the Salem yeah. Witch Trials. Okay. First off, behind you we have 25 people. Well, that 25 includes five people that died in jail prior to their trial. So they're never actually convicted. So we're not calling them executed. They just happen to die, die under, while in, in jail, waiting for a trial. So that leaves 20. Now of that 20, 19 of them were executed on Gallows Hill. The execution method, because we're an English colony, is death by hanging, which is we're never burned here in this country. That's another myth. One third of the victims of those 20 are men. Another thing, people always believe that it was all about the women had nothing to do with that. And as you learn more about it, you're going to find that the witch trials were, had very little to do with witches. You could have said the same thing in the 50s where, okay, you're not a witch, you're a communist. You know, it's the same kind of thing that went on. Now, my eight times great-grandfather, his problem was he was born a commoner and he married a wealthy widow. Once he married that wealthy widow, because in the 1690s, a woman cannot own land, she could own it as a widow. But as soon as she remarries, that she property transfers it over to her new husband. And when she transfers that, hus that property over to her husband, that elevates his status. He's no longer, longer a commoner. He's now a property owner. Oh, hey, how does he get 200 acres of property? And, and that's not fair. So that's kind of what got held over him. Because he wasn't worthy of the own, now owning property or changing status. And according to the people at the time, there's only one way to change status like that. That's, of course, sign a pact with the devil. So you've got that background going, and that's all it takes. Now you need somebody on the other side that wants that property, and now we can put together some kind of bogus charge and get him arrested. So this was eminent domain, essentially. Kind of. To take over the property and the land, yep. and they used of the time what was going on to do that. Correct. That's fascinating. And I, I guess it kind of fits in what's happening in our world today. Some. In, in a way, right? Some. And that's part of what goes on here. My goal here with this tasting room was I wanted to be part museum and part old-time tavern. Now, when I say old-time tavern, I don't mean drinking establishment. I mean, like, meeting place, gathering location, someplace where people feel comfortable to hang out, talk, 
learn. If you come in here for a cocktail or just to uh, go through our flight and sample things, I'm fine with you coming in and hanging out and having a good time. If you're up here reading the stuff that's up on the wall, I'm going to approach you and ask you if you want more information. Because you seem to have a bend towards understanding history, so I'm going to, of course, reach out and say, hey, if you'd like to learn more about that, let me know. I can answer any questions that you may have. Well, my experience of coming to your tasting room is that if you come in with the intention of just trying the spirits, that's fine. But eventually, because of the people you have here and you and your personality, it's going to be – you're going to be here a while and you're going to talk. And it's going to be an enjoyable visit. But what happens is you get to impart also the, the spirits and, and the distilled spirits you're making. That becomes a community gathering place. Yes. That, that, that's, that's the part that really impacts that as well. Um, that's another part that kind of – Changes people's mind about some stuff. Uh, we got all kinds of people in here. So we have people that casually drink. Uh, we have people that are diehard fans of bourbon. Um, we have people that, okay, I like liqueurs, but I don't necessarily like any of the spirits. Um, we have people that love cocktails, but yeah, can't drink anything straight. We'll take them through the tasting. Now, it's very small samples, so we're talking about less than... But you have a lot to try. You're just doing a lot of different things here. I try. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it comes from your beer, your brewer's background. Hey, Correct. I'll try anything. And Absolutely. If, and See if it works. works. And yeah. So um, we'll take them through. We start typically with the spirits and get through that. Um, there are a lot of times where you'll have somebody come up and they're like, oh, man, this is, this is going to be tough. And you go, you have two more spirits to try. And then once we get through the spirits, we can start talking about liqueurs. Liqueurs are easy, you know, except for people that don't like sweet. Then the liqueurs get a little tougher, too. But so. you've got a lower alcohol content, so it, it's certainly easier to consume. Absolutely. What was the first spirit you distilled here? Uh, the first spirit here was rum. Okay. That was our first spirit, which was quickly followed by the moonshine. Uh, and then finally was vodka. Did now, you so, – so was there a, an intention in the beginning to be an identification of a certain spirit? Did you know that you wanted to produce an array of different spirits and liqueurs? What was the idea behind that? It was more about an array. Um, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into this is what we make. Um, there are distilleries out there that have been open a whole lot longer than I have. I've been open two years. Uh, we currently have 14 or 15 different spirits that we produce. Uh, there are distilleries that have been open five, six, seven years that still produce one or two spirits. They've found their niche. They, they do a damn fine job of it. Um, they focus on those one or two things. For me, it's always been... If somebody comes up and says, I've always wanted to try this, and I'm thinking, how would I do that? All right, let's give that a shot. Um, if it comes off as completely silly to me, I'm not likely to try it. But if I think that there's some kind of uh, commercial value to it, of course, we'll give it a shot. If there's no commercial value to it, and the person's close enough to me to go, hey, let's just give this a shot. Am I willing to throw some alcohol at it? Sure, why not? Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like I've done craisins. Yeah. Not, not doing craisins again. Not doing craisins again. <laughs> cranberries? Cranberries, okay. Like a cranberry vodka? Yes. Okay. But craisins, you wind up... Craisins taste okay by themselves. They have that nice tartness from the cranberry. I think it's, there's a bitterness that comes out after being distilled. There's a dark fruit note that comes out with, as the raisin-type character of okay. it. Okay. And that really doesn't sit well in the alcohol. Unless you're making like a prune-based alcohol, that's kind of what I got. So it was part prune and then part of that sharp tartness of the cranberry didn't go together well i also tried the same thing with peppermint i figured okay it's christmas coming up let's take some candy canes and see what we can do with that it tasted like mouthwash 
Okay. <laughs> so that didn't fly either. Uh, but we've done all kinds of stuff. We've done marshmallow. We've done um, root beer. Root beer actually works out pretty nicely. I just haven't put it all together to get it bottled and on the shelves. Uh, you've tried our uh, ancho chili oh, vodka, yeah. and for, you've for tried a, our horseradish. Oh, yeah, for, for a, a Bloody Mary. Yes. And you mix those two together. Mm-hmm. It's just a delicious Bloody Mary. Yep. So we've tried those, and I've never released those either, but they've been on the shelf since the day we opened. What was it about rum? That was the first spirit. Why? Why did you choose to do rum versus a vodka? Which, for as me, a clear spirit, it's it's an, it's an easier one to shoot for. Vodka was never something I wanted to make. Okay, but the problem was, as I talked to people about opening a distillery, vodka kept coming up. Everyone's vodka, vodka. Well, if you're going to do cocktails, you're providing that base for a cocktail mixer as well. True, but there aren't a lot of home mixologists here. There's certainly plenty of them out there, but not as the base of, of the public. There are a whole lot of people that come up and ask, okay, well, what do I do with this? All right, well, rather than have me rattle off a dozen recipes that you're not necessarily going to remember, you know, we started saying, okay, well, here's a couple recipes that you can use with it. Brian started doing some series on, uh, on our Facebook channel, um, videos just about how to make different cocktails with the spirits that we do produce. So we've got that going on. But for me, vodka, okay. By definition, vodka is odorless, colorless, and tasteless. And tasteless right. Okay. Although a good craft vodka, and this is what I think, and this is what I feel in our experience with this, a good craft vodka does have flavor. Yes. It has an amazing flavor that really knocks your socks off after you've had what has just been the industry standards for all these years. So for me, I'm looking at it from that side of thing, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's my differentiating statement? How is it that I say that mine is better than yours? Uh, it's more odorless, more <laughs> tasteless. Right. Um, I didn't know how to, how to approach that. So for me, I knew I had to make vodka because our cream-based liqueur, uh, our vanilla chai, I knew that was, on, that was going to happen. Because two years prior to that, I had started playing with that recipe. And I had gotten it to a point where everyone I gave it to were like, I need two gallons of this right now. Like, that's great. I don't have a license to do anything. So you're not going to see this until I get Right. So you need a neutral grain spirit to start with to produce that. So I knew I was going to make my own vodka. We don't really purchase any uh, alcohol here. So everything we do, we make in-house. So I took and uh, basically ramped up my rum recipe, um, pulling back as much of the molasses as possible because molasses is a really big flavor now. Now, I could have made this purely out of cane sugar, but I would have had to um, add nutrients in it to keep the yeast healthy and keep them fermenting. So what I decided to do was there are nutrients in rum or in uh, molasses. So I decided to take the fancy uh, grade baker's molasses and use just enough to cover all the nutrients that I need. So whereas my rum recipe is about 60% molasses, the rest cane sugar. Uh, The vodka, minimal molasses. So I use about 120 pounds of molasses in the vodka recipes. Provides enough nutrients so I don't have to worry about backing up all of those nutrients. Now I do still feed the yeast to keep them active and healthy and keep those numbers efficient. Uh, But I don't have to feed them as constantly and worry about their health overall. So that gives me a rum-based vodka, which still has a lot of flavor to it. Now, I wasn't good with that. So what I did was I I took and I uh, filtered it twice at high proof. 
And then I filter it a third time once it's been proofed. So you're triple filtering. Correct. Okay. Active uh, carbon that pulls some of that flavor out, and it basically tones all of that down. Now, it still leaves it there in the background. So there's a butterscotch or toffee note to the back end of my vodka, both the aroma and the flavor. And that surprises a whole lot of people. Well, they're not used to, I mean, you know, think about the bases that you're going to start a vodka with, molasses or that sugary start of you know what you're what you're producing isn't what normally people are going to are going to start with right now most people walk in here are under the assumption that vodka is made from potatoes uh, of course well i i let people know that vodka doesn't have to be made from anything in particular you can make it out of wheat you can make it out of corn you can make it out of whatever grain you choose um it's not about that. It's about how it's distilled and what it comes off the still at. In order to be called vodka, it has to come off the still in excess of 190 proof. So as long as we meet that criteria, it's, it's now a legally not vodka. Yeah. So there are companies out there that buy neutral grain spirit, which of course is already at 190 proof, and they'll run it through their stills once to make sure that it looks like it's been distilled there, but not necessarily. You know, it was actually probably a cleaner product when it came in the door <laughs> than after running through their stills once. Only because of the efficiencies of such big scales that the big guys use. Right. I knew I wanted to make it my, myself. I knew I needed it as the base for my liqueurs. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll make it up. We'll put it in the liqueurs. That's what we need it for. But I'm sure I'm going to have leftover. We'll bottle it up and see what happens. Well, it's our number one seller. That's fabulous. See, it's it's always the things you least expect, or you don't really expect to go down that road for this really, you know, this this part of the journey. But you veer off, and this is exactly what you find that you're making. Now, you started with the rum, yep, and then you went. You, you, you're making moonshine. Rum went to moonshine, and that's corn based, so it's basically corn and cane sugar. Okay, but again, I come from a brewing side. So I built myself a mash tun, and I was able to mash that corn. So that means taking and breaking the starches in the corn down into sugars. You're really controlling the process as much as possible. Yeah, for some, for some part of that. Now, true moonshiners will actually buy number two dent corn out of the field. They'll crack it, and they'll boil it. The boiling cuts down some of the process. Um, basically, it breaks some of the uh, gummy, sticky parts of the corn, gets rid of those, and thins those out. You add them some um, amylase to that. Amylase will break more of the starch down into sugars. Well, I'm doing a piece of that, but not all of it. I don't have any method of boiling anything back there. I find boiling corn to be obnoxious, dirty. Tried to clean it on the stovetop and gone, yeah, this is never going to happen. <laughs> right. And, you know, at 500 gallons, we're not doing this. Um, so what I do is I buy um, super flake corn. And super flake corn, it's made here in Birdsboro, PA. Uh, they drop it essentially in front of a steam jet. Uh, it pops it like popcorn, and then they roll it flat. It winds up looking like cornflakes. Okay, it's a whole lot tougher than cornflakes, though. Cornflakes are nice and delicate, um, but these are pretty pretty stiff. Um, but what they've done is they've taken the step out of breaking that first piece down. So I don't have to worry about any of that. Now you don't have to boil. I don't have to boil. I can use that flaked corn, put it right into the mash tun, put it in there with my uh, six-row barley to get my enzymes in there, the amylase, to start breaking the starches down into sugars, and basically let that set and run a regular brewing process. Now, sub-distillers will take all of that, that mash, and put it right into the um, fermentation tanks and ferment it that way. I do more of a beer style where I'm basically leaving the grains behind. We're taking just the beer over to the tank and fermenting that. Then we'll take that and move it over to our stills. One of the things I connect with is you have, it, it's all detail for you. This is, this is the process for you as you create the whole vision of what you want to create. It, it, you think about every step in the process. 
You really do. <laughs> Not always. Oh, okay. <laughs> there are certainly times where you go, oh, wow, that didn't work at all. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but I do try and work out from start to finish and um, always been a tinker kind of thing. Yeah. So it's always like, yes, if I had unlimited budget, I could certainly buy a brew house and get all of this done. It'll come on a pallet. We just take the cardboard Throw off or the wood off the sides and we're good to go. Well, so my mash tun right now is a 400-gallon dairy tank. Uh, I've got two false bottoms in it to separate the liquid, the beer, or the um, sugar water from the rest of the grain. Um, so I've got a false bottom in there that is just a quarter-inch perf stainless steel screen. And then prior, uh, below that, I have a slit pipe. So those two will keep the grain in that vessel and let me take all the liquid out. And that's where I get basically started with our moonshine or our bourbon. Let's try your moonshine okay. and, and, and really take us through the flavor profile, the nose, and what you were really shooting for with that. Um, across everything here. Now, the one thing I can say universally is that for me, I've always been about making spirits that were easy to drink. I don't want a spirit with a bite. Now... Does that hurt me sometimes? Absolutely. Our bourbon, there are bourbon drinkers out there that want that bourbon bite. People will gravitate more towards a higher proof, cast strength bourbon. Yes. That's what they want to taste on the palate. Right. That is not my bourbon. My entire spirit line, uh, what I get most is, wow, your spirits are so smooth. There's no harshness to this at all. And that's kind of what I've been trying to do throughout the entire line. And I do that worrying about the fermentation side of things. Again, not trying to introduce anything that I need to worry about or deal with on the back end of things. Also do it during the distillation. I'm worried about isolating those he- or the parts uh, so much so that I'm willing to throw out either end to make sure that what I get is really clean. Now, am I losing some flavor on the tail end of things? Yes. There are some components towards tails that will definitely give me more flavor and a more mature palate. We'll find those things. But right now, I'm trying to get everything as clean and easy drinking as possible. So that's the one thing about my moonshine. When we're doing the tastings here, everyone's like, oh, moonshine. I don't know. I said, Trust me. It's oh, because it's, it's their past experience or what they believe they've heard about moonshine or what they've had other people tell them about moonshine. Yes. Right? Um, but that seems to be so, – so, so what you're telling me is the consistent part of what you're distilling through the process and what your purpose is, you want something that's easy to drink. Yep. You want something that's smooth, and that really more tells your story about what you're producing. Yes. Again, because this is our moonshine, it's 250 pounds of flaked corn, 250 pounds of cane sugar, and we use 50 pounds of six-row barley. I use the six-row barley because it's got the enzyme. And that's what we need to break those starches down into sugars. I could certainly add uh, alpha or beta amylase directly to the mash and use it that way. But I find for me, I'd rather use the grain, something a little more natural, um, and just go from there. So you got a big corn forward nose here. One of the things as you're talking about, I'm smelling cornflakes. I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I'm feeling like we just opened the box of cornflakes. <laughs> not the sugar, not the no, the, no. The, the, the real cornflakes. Yes. And that's what I get on the nose. Yes. And, and I love when people share their vision of what the whole process and everything looks like because then it introduces it. Yeah, that's exactly what I smell now. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Well, that's the interesting thing about the other part of it. For me, I spent the first 10 years of brewing, 12 years of brewing, as a complete novice. Uh, let's throw it against the wall and see if it works. 
I had good beers and I had really bad beers. Uh, I joined the Lehigh Valley Homebrewers. I was one of the founding members of the club. When we started putting things together there, um, I learned so much about homebrewing at that point in time. My beer experience went from about 10% to about 90%. Um, just talking to people. Now, I'm sitting in a room one day. I was um, taken on as an officer pretty early on in the club. Um, and I'm sitting in, the, in an officer's meeting. I've got four guys around that are experienced beer judges. And they're tasting this simple beer. I'm like, wow, I, I get an apple out of this. And I got another guy going, well, it's, it's not a green apple. It's a red apple. I'm thinking it's like a red delicious kind of thing. And I'm, I'm smelling this going, I smell beer. I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> right. But by spending enough time with these guys. You acquire, educating you acquire myself, the educated nose. Right. You acquire not only that, you know, if, if we're sitting around drinking beer and you're going, well, this beer is pretty good. And I said, well, don't you get the bubblegum note out of it? Well, Hefeweizen can come off with a bubblegum nose. It can also come off with a clove nose. It all depends. So it depends on what fermentation temperatures are, that kind of thing. So if we're sitting there talking about it, if I can give you that cue, the next time you have a Hefeweizen, not only are you going to be looking for bubblegum or clove, you're going to appreciate it and find it once it's there. And that's all it takes. Spending time drinking with these kind of people, you can develop your palate. Now, I took it from there to becoming a certified beer judge myself. Um, that was a very painstaking process, but um, I took the time to do it. Uh, I had plenty of people cheering or jeering me on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, carrot stick kind of thing. Um, so that certainly helped here as well. Now, so, one of the things, I, I don't know, I'm nosing this, and I'm, I'm listening to you explain your experience with getting that educated nose and, and understanding that it, 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 in a way, comes off as a brandy in my nose right now after we kind of let it breathe a little bit. Warm up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I could get to that note that you're talking about. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily have associated with brandy, but yes, I can understand where you're, where you're going with that. I mean, we, you mentioned apples. And all of a sudden, I don't know if, you, you know, you can mention, you know, dandelions or, you know, or what have you. But no, I'm not smelling dandelions. But I do, I do kind of get this like apple brandy on the nose a little bit. Um, yes. But what, do you get any harsh alcohol? No. You don't get any straightforward, this is either directly ethanol or isopropanol or right. anything like that. You don't get those. You know, higher and what proof is this right now? Eighty proof. Eighty proof. And you know, a lot of times, you know, when the you know you, you learn how to nose a spirit, mm -hmm. you know, you do it with your mouth open. Yes. You don't want to burn the inside of your you know nasal capacity. I would say with this, you can do this with your mouth closed. Yes. And not necessarily have that reaction to the burning sense that you talk about. But again, that comes down to the distillation process. As I'm really trying to just capture the hearts. If it comes into the hearts, if I can taste any methanol in there at all, which are the heads, uh, if I can taste that at all, it's gone. Um, so when I make those cuts, um, I'm basically tasting through it, deciding, okay, this is how much we're going to pull off as the heads. You know, methanol to me, if you take a, a bit of it on the tip of your finger and touch it to the tip of your tongue, the sensation I get is like my mouth filling up with foam. Because just touching it to the tip, it rushes back and fills my mouth. That's the sensation I get. So if I'm still detecting that as we go through uh, jar by jar throughout the process, I'm saying, okay, we're going to cut out the first six jars. Okay, so that winds up being a gallon and a half. 
So we're going to say, okay, the first gallon and a half is garbage. We're going to start in here. This is a good clean product at this point in time. I don't get that at all. So we'll carry on from there. Then I start working on from the other side and saying, okay, this is, this tastes like, oh, this smells like dog food. <laughs> uh, this one's a little cloudy. This one's got a blue cloud in it. <laughs> so we start working backwards until we get to a good clean spirit. And that's kind of how I start judging um, what I'm going to do with that. Now I'm tasting this while you're, ex you're, you're talking about that. And while it, I'll tell you what, to me, you get a little bit more of what I would say that, that burning sensation that seems higher than an 80 proof, but it almost is a character to me of like a cinnamon right. in, in, in the palate versus the, the ethanol or the alcohol burn. Now, again, cinnamon is going to come later in the mix. Yeah. So the more you let that run go, cinnamon will be one of those higher alcohols as it comes in together with that. That's one of the flavor notes that I've been able to detect easily. Um, you get that fiery cinnamon, not the natural cinnamon. No, but not the harsh burn of the cinnamon either. Okay, right. Well, not like a fireball. Or, right. Yeah. Exactly. And you get a, a subtle corn flavor to it, and it almost comes off as, as a little bit of an oaky finish to this. Um, no oak in it at all. Right. But okay. um, I have picked up vanilla notes. Yeah. Vanilla will lead you down that path of oak. Okay. Um, when oak, uh, one of the tannins that comes out of the oak when you barrel age something are vanillins. Uh, and they're called vanillins because they have that vanilla-type flavor to them and aroma. So the vanilla, I can certainly pull out of that. Um, some of the other oak tannins that I, I don't get. Um, we'll pick those up in the bourbon, I hope. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm just fascinated because, again, this is a clear spirit. Yep. It's a moonshine. You don't yep. barrel age it. Nope. But I can share with you that it almost has that little bit of a, a dry, oaky finish to it. And there's there's nothing about that in the process that gets you there. Correct. That's amazing. That really is. I mean, and, and I think that goes to the, you know, the, the mad scientist, the, the witchcraftery. Well, right. <laughs> this is, wait, wait, now I just brought everything. This is your craft. This is your witchcraft of what you're creating in a distillery. Absolutely. Now, for me, distilling has always been a whole lot of science. You are consorting with the devil, Bob. Uh, um, let's not let that get around. Okay. That may still be a crime. <laughs> well, what you're doing with the devil... You're really producing some great spirits, so keep that up. Thank you. So you you told me initially we talked about it, you're not a huge gin fan. Nope. You realized in in a way that you wanted to start creating a gin and understanding how the gin is produced, and and you brought a barrel aged gin. Now this is something you release now, or it's it's coming out for release. Uh, this is not bottled at all. Okay. So this will be bottled this week. We don't even see it. I don't even right, know what it it's is. It's not even here. Okay. Um, but we're going to taste it. <laughs> well, so uh, this is going to be a product that we're going to release in the next week. Okay. Um, we're out of gin right now. Um, the current con conditions have uh, put a serious strain on my inventory, which is fine. I, I've not run out of anything right now besides Canelo Cello, which is our cinnamon liqueur, um, and our barrel-aged spirits because... People are ripping through the barrel-aged stuff. I don't have a lot of barrel-aged on hand to start with. So it's like as soon as I release a barrel-aged, it's gone. It's gone. People will come in and go, yeah, give me that barrel-aged moonshine that you had. Because our barrel-aged moonshine versus our bourbon is a whole lot smoother. Um, it is a very easy drinking spirit. You can go through it pretty quick. The bourbon has a little bit of a bite, but like I said, not as much as a, of a bite that bourbon drinkers are expecting. If you're drinking wild turkey on a regular basis, you know that bite and that burn that you're looking for. Well, my spirits do not have that. You know, if you're a fan of Eagle Rare or Buffalo Trace, 
you're going to like my spirits a little more than if you're a fan of, you know, wild turkey, per se. So let's try the gin. Okay. And take us through that and, you know, again, what, what it was that you were searching for in producing that. The gin came about, the, the base gin itself came about during a Lost and Forgotten Spirits class that Brian and I were taking down in... And Brian's your partner. Brian is my sales guy, my driving mechanism. Uh, if I am in trouble, Brian is here to put on his Superman jacket and okay. take care and help me out and get everything going. So Brian has certainly been here. Uh, my friend Scott um, is one of the, is my co-founder, and he's the one who helped me get all of this built, get me up and running, give me the the courage to actually start the business. Uh, but Brian is here day in, day out. Like today, he's going to be running over and picking up a pallet of sugar. <laughs> um, so Brian and I are sitting in a Lost and Forgotten Spirits class in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the instructor said, okay, next up is Old Tom Gin. And I'm thinking, yuck, great, gin. <laughs> I pick up the glass and I smell it. And, of course, the first thing that hits your nose is juniper. juniper. Yeah, so I'm going, yeah, this is great. Um, the instructor says, okay, here are some notes about it. Let's take a sip. I took a sip and went, wait a minute, all of the gins that I had prior to that had been London Dry. This is an old Tom style, and it's slightly sweeter. And that sweetness helps pull that juniper back off your palate. So all of a sudden, I was like, this isn't gin, this is good. I turned to Brian, and I said, I know exactly what I want to do with it at that point in time. So I turned to him, and I said, I want to make an American version of an old Tom gin. So the American version means we're going to bump up the citrus notes. So we've got lemon peel, sweet orange peel, tangerine peel, grapefruit peel, all in there to bump those citrus notes up, bring that new world fruit into it. And then to finish it off, I give it just a touch of elderflower. Because I was looking for something, I wanted a floral finish to the end of it. The barrel, it was just one of those, eh, we've got a batch of sitting around. We've got a barrel that's been used for um, moonshine. It's been used for rum. Well, there's not much else we can really do with it. We'll throw the gin in it and see what happens. For the first two months, it was very buttery. Okay? Buttery notes, not necessarily what you're looking for to go with all of those nice herbaceous notes of the um, gin itself. After about four or five months in a five-gallon barrel, that butteriness fell away. And it left that nice rounded barrel character. So again, some of those vanillins that we were talking about, some of the other wood characters, um, mellowed out, everything just kind of balanced. And at that point in time, that's when we pulled it. This is a real enjoyable nose. And, and, and as you're explaining this, I've really gone through the experience of it. And the first thing, when it was first poured, one of the things I got was almost like a, a, a sweet mint, like, mm -hmm. a, a, yes. like a cream de mint kind of a smell um, nose to it. And then I started getting those citrus notes that came out. Yep. But it's a real sweet citrus to it. Mm -hmm. And that mint, where it's almost like a mint on the nose that kind of lingers through the whole thing. That's more out of the barrel than it is out of the regular gin. Now, you poured us the unbarreled version of the gin to nose next to it. And yes. you do get more of that juniper forward nose to it. But it still has that citrus mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. But I have to say, what this barrel does to this... and. That the vanillins that you talk about, mm -hmm. this is it's the precursor of what I'm I'm excited to, to to taste on this. And this isn't out yet, so people should be lining up out your <laughs> out your door for a really good barrel aged gin. Um, yeah. Well, the other thing I think is missing from the original product is that mint character that you were finding. No, nah, it wasn't there. Right. 
Uh, this is phenomenal. Thanks. This is amazing. Again, everything here is about balance. Uh, that's coming from my uh, brewing background, my judging background. Um, if I'm judging a fruit beer, I want to know what the beer is and I want to know what the fruit is because I want to compare them and make sure that one's not beating the other out. If you tell me that this is a cream ale, then I want to be able to find the cream ale behind it. So it's all about the balance. So we find that mostly through our liqueurs because most people like liqueurs are all about sweet. No, I want to balance that. I'm really enjoying the, the, the trip through this gin and you really do get a lot of citrus on the palate. And it does finish out with that elderflower floral note in the mouth. Right. It's This is incredible, and this is very well done. This is something you should be very proud of, especially somebody that doesn't want to produce a gin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, this is our highest awarded spirit. Um, this took a gold medal in uh, competition last year, uh, the Bartender Spirit Awards. It was one of 19 gold medals awarded in the competition overall. So I was pretty damn happy about that. Um it was, again, something I'm quite proud of because most people that come in here and then go through the tasting are like, gin? No, I, I don't I don't like gin. We'll pour them a small sample. They'll nose it, taste it, and go, okay, I don't normally like gin, but this is good. Now, so. this is really good. This is exceptional. Now, you have a bottle of your bourbon, and I don't want to – because you mentioned it a few times. Let's try that, and we'll talk about some of the activities that will be going back on – at the distillery and what people can expect when they come here too. <laughs> when we get open again. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and talk about a little bit about how COVID-19 and, you know, we're, 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 we're eight feet apart right now. We've got, we've got shields on and gloves <laughs> and masks and we're all outfitted and everything else. <laughs> yes, full hazmat. Uh, COVID has basically, the governor shut us down. I think it was the 16th of March, basically said non-essential businesses, which would be our retail bar business, uh, are shut down. So at that point in time, I was trying to figure out what it is that we could open up for. Luckily, the LCB um, allowed us to be open for bottle sales. So we have been open for bottle sales. I changed my hours to try and give people as much opportunity as possible to come in and replenish their supplies. So we're open weekdays now from 3 to 9 p.m., on the weekends, we're open from 12 to 4. The only problem is right now, we can't do tastings. We can't do – you can't sample the product. Right. So if you if you want to – like obviously with this gin, it's something people should come out for. They're going to buy a whole bottle to experience it. They're not going to try it and then decide they want to purchase the bottle. Right. Normally, I'm of the opinion of that you're not leaving here if you don't try it. Because I know that, okay, yeah, I want to try the bur the moonshine or whatever. Okay, have you had it before? No. All right, then you're going to have a sample of it because I don't want you to buy something, go home, and go, no, this really isn't what I want. I'd rather you make that decision here in front of me and then go choose something else. That's perfectly fine. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, so that's the one problem what's going on now. Um, so bottle sales, we're crushing it with our vodka. Um, and apparently you're the only ones in Lehigh Valley with vodka right now. <laughs> well, that's what I keep hearing. The phone calls I get every day. Everybody made hand sanitizer. You said, no, give the people what they want. <laughs> um, I started bad making batches of our, our vodka washes, which is what it's called before it gets distilled. I started making batches of that back to back. So I've been shotgunning two, uh, two fermenters full of vodka, and I'm just keeping them full. So we're running through vodka as we as we get through it. Right now, I am, I've am i got a bit of a window here where I could run out, 
But as soon as I get back in line here, which take me less than a few days, um, we'll be back in operation and we'll have plenty of vodka. Now, I'm nosing your bourbon. Yes. And the first thing or one of the things that distinctly comes out is root beer okay. on the nose. Okay. I, I get that. I mean, I, besides the normal characteristics of a bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do get root beer. See, I get a popcorn kind of thing, like a caramel popcorn right. kind of thing to the back end of that. The root beer, I'm not sure where it's coming All from. All right. I don't know. I, it's not unpleasant. I, I love no, it. No. I love it. Whatever that is, I love that. I mean, it's it's one of the beautiful things is we all smell differently. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, now so you're I will never tell you, no, that's not in that's there. That's not in Yeah. I'll tell you that I don't know how you're getting it. Now, that's one thing as being a, a beer judge, you can help people pull things apart. Right. You said root beer. Now, what if I was able to take that apart and say, well, maybe it's a bit of this and a bit of that. So take it apart. Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't, I don't know that I'm yeah, finding You're looking you... at like, I have no idea how you got there. Right? <laughs> I know I don't usually speak, but I'm smelling. I'm actually smelling the root beer. All right. So okay. two people smell root go. beer. So there you go. Dawn smells root beer. I smell root beer. Now, one of the things that comes off there, as, as you say that, there's not that bite. It's very smooth. Mm-hmm. You get the corn nature of the bourbon, yep. Um, and and you, there's the oak that comes out of that, the, the cinnamon or the you know the baking spices that are there yep. right in the back of the throat. Yep, that is a lot of barrel dependency. So this is actually a blend of two different barrels. Um, one barrel came off um, kind of baseline, and there wasn't a whole lot of unique character to it. The other one was full of character. Okay. Um, so we decided that that one's got way too much going on. So by blending the two barrels together, almost one-to-one, uh, we wound up with this, which was a little uh, little more corn-forward than our first batch of uh, bourbon. Um, so that's kind of what I was looking forward to. Now, really enjoying, I mean, you got your liqueurs and, and you make the ancho spirit that you make and the horseradish mm-hmm. that you make. What are some of the other, the other liqueurs that people can expect to come and, and, and enjoy when they come here? Well, the first one was our limoncello. So after the cream-based beer, which I started, uh, again, before opening, uh, the first liqueur after that would be the limoncello. And for me, the limoncello, again, back to balance. I've had American limoncellos that pour like syrup, and they taste nothing but sugar. I've had Italian limoncellos that taste like, okay, this is grappa, just lemon-flavored grappa. Grappa is a big punch of alcohol. Yeah, right you're up getting from, that burn. And, absolutely. Oh, look, there's lemon in there. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Lemon-flavored jet fuel. Right. Perfect. Um, I didn't want either one of those. So I wanted to taste the alcohol. I wanted it to be there. I wanted it to be prominent. But I also want the lemon to be there. And I want to use the sugar to just to kind of balance those two out. Not to go one way or the other. Just to kind of link the two together. Um, so what I get most on my limoncello is... That's a really amazing limoncello because it's not overly sweet. It's not overly alcoholic. It's not hot. It's still easy to use, easy to drink. It's at 43 proof. So, When you start welcoming the community back to Gallows Hill Spirits, yep. what's some, what are some of the activities that people can expect or the things that you do on a regular basis that you know have people enjoy the besides the tour and the tasting and the story? What are some of the other things you're doing? Um, on Friday nights, we do either trivia or music bingo. Music bingo has been huge for us. Uh, we've packed this place every other Friday. Um, music bingo, we have a DJ comes in. He uh, puts together bingo cards, uh, distributes them, and plays the music. You have to know the artist and the song title and find those on your bingo card. And uh, everyone 
literally. That, that Sounds is, very competitive. It is. <laughs> it is. But the funny thing is, is that no uh, electronic devices are devices right. are allowed. But we encourage you to share from table to table. If you got a group of people that are all sitting around going, damn it, I know this song. It's this person. What's the name of the song? Well, hey, talk to the table next to you. Maybe they already know. So invites people to converse. But it also is that challenging nature. You want to be the one to call bingo. But I tell you what you don't want to be. You don't want to be the person who calls bingo and then goes and, up and, there. And, and that's and wrong. wrong. Yeah, you don't want to ever be that person. <laughs> that enti- The entire crowd will boo you as you of walk course. back to your table. <laughs> um, so that's on Friday nights. Either that or trivia. Um, again, that's a really big draw for us. On Saturday nights, we do live music. Uh, I'm not into the big booming bands kind of thing here. This is not a disco. This is not a... Stage for rock concerts, um, so I kind of keep it singer songwriter kind of things. So we get that acoustic vibe going. Um, nice, easy Saturday night drinking. Um, other things that we do, uh, we have a medium that comes in about once a quarter and should do gallery readings. Um, that's an interesting take. There's a whole lot of people that are very interested in what she does, and my experiences with her. Not only has she been able to tell me things about myself or my history or my family that are intriguing and I've been able to find is correct. Um, but she also, you know, can basically bring a very warming, very healing kind of spirit to her. And Halloween's big here. Halloween is I would huge. imagine Halloween's a Halloween little bit of a deal. Is, it is. Um, we do a Halloween party. It's on the Saturday before Halloween. Um, this year, Halloween is on Saturday, so I'm not sure what the hell we're going to do. It's going to be a raucous night. Uh, last year we were spilled out into the parking lot. Um, we got a food truck here typically on the weekends as well. So we do have some food component here. We've got music going on. Um, during our anniversary, which was back on uh, the beginning of March, uh, we did some classes during the day as well. And I'm thinking about pulling some of that in. My brother did a one man show a recreation of the trial. So he's basically playing off himself. He's pre-recorded voices that he's got uh, going off the PA system. So he'll literally play Samuel as he goes through the period of his trial. Oh, that's awesome. So just some things to bring the spirit in, bring everything back together there. We do a bunch of witch-based cocktails. You know, we have a cauldron full of punch, that kind of thing. And you sit the gallow up outside. and No, you, no, we no. try not to <laughs> okay. do that. I've been asked plenty of times, and it just gets a little too real. Well, so. it's funny because um, Liberty Pole Spirits... Um, out in Washington, they have a Liberty Pole out in front. So we need to get a gallow out in front of your your establishment here. <laughs> I'm not sure. A non-functioning gallow, of course, <laughs> of course. Maybe not perfect. Listen, Bob, we met at the American Whiskey Convention mm-hmm. last year and just enjoyed the spirits you're making. I've been looking forward to this when you said, hey, come on out. We'll sterilize everything. We'll make it safe. Um, let's sit down and, and, and talk. This has been a treat for us. Um, we look forward to all the great uh, things that are coming out of Gallows Hill Spirits. And when, when, when we are able to get back out and enjoy Definitely, this is a place you want to go and put it on your itinerary. Uh, thanks again so much for sitting down with us. We, we, we really had a great time. Thank you guys for coming out and walking through and chatting. Thanks, I mean, this, is, this has been a great experience. That's been great. Thank you.